0: You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 3. We will continue our look at... John the Baptist's public appearance, and specifically his message. We started looking at it last week, we'll continue that and into um, also next week. And this week, we're kind of focusing on uh, this week and next week, we're we're really looking at how John is trying to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. It's, It's their witness. And and next week, we'll, we'll, we'll look at the Father's witness and into the genealogy and, um, and see why is that important. How does this show us that Jesus truly is the Son of God? Because if, if we're putting our trust in Him, then, then we need to know that He is who He says He is. Because if He's not, then, then our salvation is, is not true. We're still separated from God. So again, as, as we began, began last week, we'll continue to look at John's public appearance and his message that, that was given to him by God. So let me pray real quick, and, and we'll dive into what God has for us. Father, we just thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, Father. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who came to save us. Father, you sent your son, you sent yourself to save those who spent their life rebelling against you. It's unthinkable, Lord. But that's how much love you have for your children. And Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray today that the Holy Spirit will work through me and into the hearts of all those to hear your word and John's message. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Again, John had this message, received this message from God. John, being the last prophet of the Old Testament, Received a word from God. We find him in the region around the Jordan proclaiming the message. He was given. So he's out proclaiming. He's being faithful. He's doing exactly what called him to do. And we read in there that the crowds came to hear his message and to be baptized. Whenever we think of crowds, the best that I could study, don't think of like your local church's tent meeting where, you know, everybody from other churches might join them. Think of Billy Graham crusade type of thing happening here. Out in the Jordan where all these Jewish people were coming to see, is this the Messiah? What is the message? And to be baptized by John. It's a it's a big deal. This is a a massive thing that's happening around the region of the Jordan is what the Bible tells us. And what was his message? His message was repent. His message was repent and be baptized. So God sends a message through a prophet, to his people who are in bondage, bondage from sin. That's his message then, and this is His message today for all those who are not in Christ. And those that are in Christ, although that we have been freed from the penalty of sin, we have not yet been freed completely from sin. That will happen one day whenever we are in glory with Him. So John's message, at the very least, was not have your best life now. It was a pretty rough message. He's telling Jewish people, those that already believe and know because they, were, they would say their father's Abraham, that they were God's children, that they are God's chosen, that he's telling them, repent and be baptized. That rubs some people the wrong way, let me tell you. He was not very popular. In fact, I would think if you're, if you're coming to him, you're, what's going to happen, what's happening? And he's up there calling people. Why did you come, you brood a viper? You know what he was saying to them then? He he was saying, you are a child of Satan. Why do you come to get baptized? Again, he's speaking mostly to the people who would call Abraham their father, the the children of God. That's amazing. But he's saying, no, no, no. All these things are passing away and the Messiah is coming. This is my message. Now you must repent because there's gonna be a new thing happening. A new thing that's happening inside of you. A new thing that's happening with your heart. Because in essence, if you want to think of it, if you want to separate it, all these people, although they are following the Jewish rituals, and, and if they had faith, they will be saved, they will be in heaven with us if they're believing in, in the promise of the Messiah, that they had stony hearts. And then, then God comes and sends a spirit, which we're going to learn about today, and he gives us a heart of flesh, and then he begins to mold that heart of flesh. This is God's people that he's calling a brood of vipers. This is not a popular message. It probably ruffled some feathers. So he calls them children of Satan and offers a warning against a great potential error. And this is the error that we also face also. Many times that, that before we may be in Christ, if you're sitting here and you're just exploring and trying to figure out, well, is this true? Is Jesus who he said it is? What is all this Christianity about? Why do these people follow this man? that we must not rest in one's heritage. In fact, we must not rest in anything other than Christ for our salvation. And we must respond to God. We must respond to him. That's what John's saying. John says, judgment comes on all nations, not on the people of Abraham. This is what they would push back at him. No, no, no. The the, the judgment comes on all these other nations, but the nation of Israel, we're we're God's people, and and it's not coming. He's like, no, unless you believe in Christ. This is a new thing that's happening. The new covenant is about ready to come. John says, not so fast. Not only can God raise up stones to be his children, the axe is at the root of the tree, and he is about to swing for those who do not produce fruit. For those who do not produce fruit which is exactly what John is calling them to do when he asks, what shall we do? Remember, they said, what shall we do? And he gives them a list of things that they do. We must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he gives them that list. And the thrust of last week's message was that repentance is not a change of behavior, but a change that happens in the heart. And it is a change of the object of your trust. Who or what are you trusting in? In our case, if we are following Christ, it's him. It's his work, what he has done, who he is, and what he has accomplished for us. And, and it's hard. I, I know it's, we, we had counseling class over the last two days. And, and one of the things I shared with our folks that's going through this class so they can better serve you and, and sit down and help to speak the truth and love to you is the hardest thing that, that it, is, it seems like for even Christians to, to believe and understand Is the gospel is the power. It's like if I'm suffering with something or if I'm struggling with a sin and and what we're looking for is we're looking at that root and we want to change the heart. We want to change what you trust in and what we do is we speak the gospel into that and it's so hard for us to trust that just believing in the gospel actually changes us. I mean Paul said that's the power to change. That's the power to save. If it's the power to change us from death into life then certainly it's the power to help us overcome sin that Christ has already paid for. But I man, that's hard to for us because we are doers by nature, right? We are doers by nature. No, no, we need to do something, right? No, you need to change what you believe and trust in, and that will cause change in your behavior. That will cause the change in your behavior. Generosity, honesty, they're all fruits of true repentance. This will happen if you truly have changed what you trust in. Repentance happens when God becomes the object of your trust, specifically what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And the fruit of the true repentance will always result in a change of our behavior. This is John's message so far. Tough message for those who have been waiting for the Messiah, right? Because Their idea of the Messiah is he's gonna come and overthrow the Roman government. He's gonna put us in charge and we will stop suffering and having all these troubles and then then, then Jesus is coming and and it all's going to be good. But no, that's not the idea. Jesus says, no, I wanna change your heart. I wanna change you from the inside out. I'm not gonna change your circumstances. I wanna change you from the inside out. Those who came out to hear John had to be flustered a bit. What is going on? You know, is this the Messiah or not? Remember, this, this is coming on the heels of 400 years of God not saying anything to him. And, and there's darkness and there's these evil guys that are they're in charge that, that he talks about just briefly, he gives us those names of that time step right there in the first beginning of, of chapter three. They must be flustered a bit, right? What's going on? Repentance is one thing, but for a Jewish person to be immersed the, the baptized being put in water part for the Jewish person, that, that was like, what are you talking about? I have to do that. No, no, no. So you got to understand what they believed and, and how they lived to understand how offensive that might've been for some of those. Because the only people that they used to, to baptize, like we think of baptize, we immerse somebody in water, is for the Gentile who is converting to Judaism. And what it means is you're washing away the impurity. That's what it meant for them. So, that, you know, here it is. Wait a minute. I'm, I, I went to the last Passover. I made my sacrifices. I'm under, right, I, I've done what God has done. I'm practicing, um, you know, my Jewish faith and really well. But now you're coming to tell me I must do something different. I must repent and then I must get in the water? No, 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 no. It had to be really offensive for these people. Not a popular message, not a popular message that John was called to give. To be a Jew and to be told that being a child of Abraham will not save you, get in the water. (laughs) That was offensive. That created some tension, but it also raised some questions. And this is where we pick up our passage today. So you, you see the tension that they're having, they're hearing his message, they're seeing people being baptized, and so some people did so, and some people, I think, just walked away looking at our text and looking at our passage, and some of them are, are thinking, as we pick up in verse 15, what we're going to talk about today, as the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Is John it? Is he the promised Messiah? Again, they were were expecting him. They were waiting for the Messiah, just as we should be. We should be waiting for the second coming, expecting it to come. We don't know when it's gonna come. Jesus don't even know when he's gonna come. It's up to the Father. We don't know. We just don't know. But we should be expectantly waiting for that, the promise that he will come again, just as they were waiting for the first time that he would come. Could John be the one? We know that this was not just something people were thinking. They were talking about it, or John would have not known their questions. Or Luke, the historian. I mean, maybe, you know, it's not up to John to know this. This is Luke, and we know that most of what he's probably gotten here in the first three chapters came from Mary, we know that just because there's so many details that only Mary would know. And, but, but he was also a good historian where he was asking questions about what happened. What about this John the Baptist? What did you see? What did you hear? What did you witness? You know, in many ways, we are asking the same question, aren't we? But it's not about John, it's about Jesus. We, we're asking the same question. We're saying, can I truly trust him? Can I truly trust Jesus? Can I let go of my kingdom of one and being in, in charge of it? And can I truly trust him? I mean, that's what they're, they're wondering, is this the Messiah? And in many ways, we're, we do that too. Is he the Messiah? And this is believer and unbeliever alike. We all have areas of unbelief and it's one of the reasons why God brings you into a faith family so that a brother and sister could come to you and say, look, I think you have a blind spot here. Let me help you see. Here's the scripture. Let me speak truth and love to you. Let me show you your errors so that you may repent like John is calling us to do. We all have struggle with this. We all have areas of life where we don't believe. And, and if you're like, no, Joe, you're great. No, you have sin in your life. And at the very root of sin is you are trusting in something other than God. And that's why you chase after that thing and disobey the word of God. That's the essence of it. There are places where we don't trust his word and don't believe what he accomplished in Jesus Christ is enough to deal with our past or what we are facing in this moment or the next. No, He is enough. He can cover whatever junk that you've done in the past or has been done to you, whatever you're walking in today and whatever God might bring to you tomorrow or the next week or next month or next year. See, we know that, that we fall into this. We fall into this error where, where we were saved by faith. Yes, I trust in Christ, but then we, we don't wanna walk that way. And And Paul saw this in the church in Galatia, didn't he? He said in verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So he's given us who we are. But remember how he started this? He said, oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Why have you started out in faith, but you've walked back to works? You've walked back to to doing things in order to be saved or trust in other things. That's the warning the whole book of Galatians is about. Is it by faith that we walk? That's that's trusting. That's what faith is, right? It's understanding that leads to conviction, which ends in a commitment. That's faith, and that's how we live. That's why it's so important that that our understanding, that our minds, that we understand who Christ is. We gotta hold him way up here. We have to. If we don't, if he's not the holy God that we we sung about, then what happens is is we start kind of chipping away to things we don't like, and we end up with this God that now that we have formed, and oftentimes he looks like the person in the mirror when you're brushing your teeth on Sunday morning, Right? But we gotta, we gotta guard against that. We have to guard against that. This is why Luther, as it was mentioned last week, said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. All of the Christian life is repentance. It's a constant adjustment. You know, kind of like... Um, When you go to the chiropractor, he's kind of adjusting your skeletal system. We are being sanctified. The Holy Spirit convicts us. God speaks to us of an area where we're not trusting in God's word or Jesus' work. And then we repent. We turn from that. We agree with what God has said. Because if you are convicted of sin, that means God just spoke to you. You agree with him. You turn from that. We confess the sin to God and others. And then we choose to put off sin and put on his righteousness. We put off and put on, this is Ephesians 4. So John, are you the Christ? Are you him? Well, let's let John answer. Verse 16. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of those sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. No, I'm not it. Emphatically, I'm not him. And what we see in his response is a threefold declaration of Jesus' superiority. Superiority. He's want to show us like three ways that Jesus is superior to John, and it's also showing us who Christ is and who God is. It's helping us to see that. In verse sixteen, we see two of those. Jesus is mightier. He says that right there in verse sixteen, and he also says that Jesus brings a better baptism. I'm going to baptize you with water, but there's one coming that's going to give you a greater baptism, a greater baptism. The statement of Jesus' superiority and the contrast of two baptism of John and Jesus is something that all four of the synoptic Gospels, they have in it. So so obviously God, you know, inspiring Scripture, wants us to understand there's a difference between John and Jesus, right? That Jesus is mightier, Jesus is greater than John. Jesus' ministry is in a different class than John. John's teaching prepares rather than parallels Jesus' teaching. In other words, he's preparing everybody to hear the message of Jesus because to be honest, for those that are perishing, the message isn't a very good message either unless you truly believe until God acts upon you with the Spirit. We don't wanna hear that. We don't wanna hear it often. John shows us that this, not by telling us how mighty Jesus is, like he's not going to show us that he is 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 more powerful and mightier by, by just describing his might. He's going to do it by showing how low that John is. He's, he's just kind of comparing for us. He says, "The strap whose sandals I am not worthy to untie." No, I you don't understand. I, I am not Jesus. I am not him, John saying. I can't even untie his sandal straps. That's the gap that's between me. In Jesus. Most people in the first century went barefoot or they wore sandals. One duty of a slave was to untie the sandals from the master's feet. In Judaism, this was such a degrading act that a Hebrew slave was not to undertake it. Thus, John is saying that he is no is so inferior to the coming one that he is not worthy to perform the most menial task for his master. All he's trying to do is show the separation. He's showing how much mightier that that Jesus is than, than who he is. And he does this by comparison saying, no, I'm not, I can't even undo the straps. And that's pretty amazing because what does Jesus say about John? There is no greater human being that's ever lived than John the Baptist. None. So that really takes our pride and sticks it in a hole somewhere, doesn't it? It's not about who you are, what you've done, that that God has saved you. I mean, the, the greatest human declared by Jesus that ever lived said he's not even worried to untie sandals. It's all of God. We have to lay it down, it's all of God. Our salvation is all of God. That should be freeing. It should be freeing. First, he says, Jesus is mightier. He is mightier than me, and he shows this by comparison. And second, Jesus brings a better baptism. He brings a better baptism. He says that he will baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's a better baptism. We can see the difference by comparing the mode of these two baptisms. John baptized people with water in the Jordan, just like we're gonna do next Sunday, praise the Lord. We're gonna baptize somebody with water in the Jordan. Not in the Jordan, but in our tank. Sorry. That'd be cool to do it in a river, though. I've never done that before. Um, his baptism was the outward sign of an inward cleansing. That's, that's exactly what we'll talk about next Sunday. As the person is being baptized, it, it's, it's, an, it's an outward sign of what has happened in the heart. And what has happened in the heart is the Holy Spirit baptism. That's the difference. But when Christ came, he would baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. This is what John's saying. This is a better baptism. This far beyond anything John could do. John could call people to repentance and he could wash them with water. Just like whenever we go roll around in the the dirt or, or something and we go take a shower and we're washed. He could do that, but he can't touch our hearts. He couldn't change them from the inside out. He couldn't change them. And that's what we needed. We need a new heart. David Gooding says it this way. John could put repentant people in the water. In a sense, anybody could. Only one who, had, who was God could put people in the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit in people. That's just the witness. Only God could do that. And this is who Jesus is. What does it mean to be baptized, to baptize people with the Holy Spirit? Being baptized by the Spirit means regeneration. Or maybe you're more familiar with being born again. That's what he said to Nicodemus. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. John 3, 3, Jesus has answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When you're baptized by the Spirit, you are born again. All believers are baptized in the Spirit. All believers are baptized in the Spirit. This is when the Spirit unites the elect sinner to Christ by breathing new life into a spiritually dead person, removing the heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. This is the baptism. This is the better baptism that Jesus gives us. Now, there is a miracle for you. That's an absolute miracle. Every born-again believer is a living miracle. You have been raised just like Lazarus. You were not sleeping, and then all of a sudden you hear a message and and then then I muster up enough to to give faith and and repent. No, you were dead. And and thank goodness someone came along and gave you the good news and it accompanied in an effectual calling by the Holy Spirit that changed your heart so that you can respond to Him. You were born again. And when you were born again, the Holy Spirit baptized, you were baptized into the Holy Spirit. And now this Jesus person that maybe you've been running from or think is a good teacher or, or maybe a, you know, a good person, all, all of a sudden you see him as a Lord. And then you start seeing the gap between you and your Lord. That's the baptism of the Spirit that John says Jesus is bringing, a better baptism. That is just a miracle. But you know what, there's more to the baptism. There's more to this miracle that once you were dead like Lazarus and now you're alive, once you were living in darkness and now you're living in the light. What else does the spirit do in this baptism? He adopts, he claims us as children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You are now a child of God. You are his. There's more to the baptism. The spirit also sanctifies. He makes us like our elder brother, Christ. He makes us like him. 2 Thessalonians 2:13 says but we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers beloved by the Lord because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth belief in the truth the spirit seals preserving our faith to the end you are sealed if you're in Christ you are sealed Nothing can take you away from him. Nothing can separate you from the love of God if you are in Christ Jesus. You are sealed. You cannot lose the free gift of your salvation. If you are saved, you are then born again. I've yet to have anybody who kind of believes that. Oh, maybe we can lose our salvation in this. I just, I go to this and I ask this honest question because if I'm wrong, I want to know that I'm wrong. But show me in the Bible where we can be unborn again. It's not in there. Yeah, you know what? We, we might come to faith, say we're, we're at college and, and, and we come to faith and then, then the world comes crashing around us. And this is where the, the, the parable of all the soils come in. But you know what? Sometimes we wander for a long time, kind of like the prodigal son. But if we are Christ, if you were truly born again, if you truly have the spirit and, and you're born again, that you might wander for a long time, but he's gonna bring you back. Sometimes he'll bring you back kicking and screaming, or you will be so low because you've chased after all the things that you trust in. You'll be so low in life that that the next person that reminds you, that's why we always have to be reminded, that reminds you about this, this person, Jesus. And you go back, it's like, wait a minute, I know him. We see, we, we are Western thinkers and we're, we want everything to have A plus B equals C, but it's not, it's not God's economy. That's not how God does things. That's why we are just to love. We are to love. We are to love. He sanctifies us, he seals us, You know what? The Spirit fills us. Let me give you the the sealing scripture. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed. Sealed. And then we know the Spirit fills, equipping us for ministry. This is our Corinthian passage. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. The Spirit gives us gifts to do ministry, to do His work, to be ambassadors, to be agents of reconciliation. My question is, is have you experienced this baptism? Every believer does. Because it is the Holy Spirit who makes a Christian a Christian. It's the Holy Spirit that makes a Christian a Christian. He changes our hearts. Our baptism comes from Jesus, who has the power and authority to send us the Spirit. Remember Jesus talking to the disciples? He was comforting them. He was saying, man, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going, I'm going to the cross, and, but I'm leaving. And they were all upset. And what does he say to them? Nevertheless, i tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I will send the Spirit, I will send the Spirit. Whereas John baptized with water, Jesus baptizes with God, the Holy Spirit. This reminds us that only God can do the inward work of salvation that leads to eternal life. Only God can do the work. We can share the gospel, preach the word, and reach out in practical deeds of mercy. We can even baptize with water. We can do all the outward things, but only God can do the inward things, like change a sinner's heart. It's not, it's not on us as we share the gospel and, and the hope that we have within us. We're not trying to convince them to change. We give them the gospel and then we pray for them, for the Holy Spirit to change them. That's our part, that's His part. Sometimes we, we think we gotta do both parts, but we don't, right? It's, it's, it's the spirit that changes the heart. He does this by the spirit of Christ, which shows how Christ is, that Christ, who Christ is, and how great he is. John also said Jesus would baptized with fire. Okay, Joe, so what is that all about? Unfortunately, many think that this is some special baptism that we should seek. Like there's this baptism of the Holy Spirit and this baptism of fire, and let's go seek that. Um, it provides us with more power or some special experience with God. Uh, and unfortunately, I think the idea is, is kind of prevalent in our area, and I just want to warn against that. And I'm not because of Job, but because of scripture and what it says here. I do not desire that baptism. In fact, I am very thankful the Lord saved me so that I do not experience this baptism. What do you mean, Joe? Those that believe that this is an extra baptism to be sought usually connects this, um, this verse 16 in Luke with Acts 2.3. They make this connection. The Holy Spirit come. Look, there's there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We get filled with the Spirit and there's a baptism of fire and they connect it to Acts 2.3. Acts 2.3 reads this way. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Okay, that's what it says. Just follow along with me. We're going to get a little technical, and and, and open your Bibles and and look at it with me. And, and some of you that might have an NIV, you're probably going to read something that looks a little bit different. Um, the ESV. So let me just really quickly explain why it looks different. First of all, the NIV goes from thought for thought. And the ESV and the NSV go from word-for-word translations, right? And so the ESV is just taking the words of the Greek and translating the best they can into English. And the NIV is taking thoughts, what is the thought here, and using words written on different grade levels for better understanding. So, in our ESV it says, "...and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them." Of course, we are talking about Pentecost, the very sending of the Spirit. Now, when we look at our ESV translation, we see that it reads as a descriptive narrative. That's how it is reading for us. It is not a extra baptism, a second baptism. It is a descriptive thing that happened whenever the Holy Spirit came. Let's just read it within context. And actually within the context of Acts two, one through four, you can see that they're describing something. He's describing that suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Like. And divided tongues as of fire. So if you look at where he says as of fire, okay, and where it says sound like a mighty wind, they're both the same conjunction. In Greek. And what is it doing? It's an adverbial comparison. What it's doing is describing something. It is describing something. I mean, they're trying to find words to what God just did, and they're trying to do the best they can. So Acts 2.3 does not say that the baptism associated with the Spirit's distribution is of fire, but it's spread through the crowd like a fire. It's descriptive. The acts image of fire discussed only the Spirit spreading through the crowd. It does not discuss, discuss the nature of the baptism itself. So, what does it mean in Luke 3.16? All we have to do is read the next verse. <laughs> Keep it in context. What does the next verse mean? And we see why why Joe would say, Thank you, Lord, for saving me. And I hope you do too. Let's read Luke 3.17. His winnowing fork is at hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the weed into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He will burn with unquenchable fire. So the fire that is in verse 16 is defined in verse 17 as divine judgment. As divine judgment. And and this idea, this picture that Luke is, again, trying to, trying to give us words to describe what, what is happening here. It's a familiar image. We can find it in Psalms 1 and the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 13. It's kind of a farm image, right? As at harvest time, a farmer has to separate the wheat from the chaff. In those days, the farmers did this by tossing the grain up in the air. The wheat would fall back to the ground while the lighter chaff would get blown into a pile for burning. John is saying that Christ would do the same thing with the human race. Luke twelve forty nine is Jesus' words saying, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would, and would that if we're already kindled. One day he will sift humanity to make a final separation between two kinds of people, the wheat and the chaff. The wheat will be gathered into the storehouse of heaven, while the chaff will be burned with fire. The reference to unquenchable fire makes it clear that John is talking about the wrath of God at the final judgment. Everlasting punishment in the eternal fire of hell. Matthew 25:41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire departed, prepared for the devil and his angels. Later on, verse 46, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteousness into eternal life. Brothers and sisters, it is meant for every single human being that has ever been born on this planet, who is living now, and who will ever be born, will be judged by God. And the wrath will come. Now, here's the difference. Will the wrath fall on you? Or will you say, I trust Christ, and the wrath fell on him? That's what the cross represents. When we take communion here in a little bit, and we break that wafer that represents the body the wrath that he took for us. The wrath is coming, he is a just judge and every single one of us have rebelled against him. So he has to be just and he has to judge us. Where will the wrath fall? Where will the wrath fall? He has done something so that you do not have to experience this wrath. J.C. Rao has described the great day of judgment like this. Believers and unbelievers, holy and unholy, Converted and unconverted are now mingled in every congregation and often sit side by side. It passes the power of man to separate them. False profession is often so like true and grace is often so weak and feeble that in many cases the right discernment of character is an impossibility. The wheat and the chaff will continue together until the Lord returns. But there will be an awful separation at the last day. The unerring judgment of the king of kings shall at length divide the wheat from the chaff and divide them for. Forevermore. The righteous shall be gathered into a place of happiness and safety. The wicked shall be cast down to shame and everlasting contempt. In a great day, a great sifting day, everyone shall go to his own place. And John describes the separation as a fiery baptism, which also gives us our third superiority of Jesus that John is trying to show us. He is the judge. He's the judge. He's the judge that saved you if you're in Christ. John could call people to repent, just like any pastor, and just like you can to a loved one, a friend, or, or a coworker. You can call them to repent, just like John, but Christ could actually hold them to account. He will hold you and me to account. He is the judge as well as the savior. As such, he holds the power of judgment by fire, the holiest of baptism of all. He will purify everything at one time. This was John's witness and also his warning. Luke actually calls John's preaching good news. He calls it good news. Look at verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But how can judgment by fire be good news? It is good news because when you know the truth about God's wrath, maybe you will start looking for a way out. If you know the truth, there's only one way out, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Faith in me. Not everyone will want to hear the good news. And we were reminded of this by Luke. What happened to John? For doing the will of God, for being faithful, for giving the faithful message, what happened to John? Luke tells us, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So what did John do? John called him out on his sin, obviously messing around with his brother's wife and all the evil that he did as the king of that territory. See, John did, have, did not have no successful ministry if we, all we do is judge it by external standards. His straightforward rebuke of Herod's morality landed him in prison. But the arrest is not a sign of failure. It is a sign of faithfulness. It is a sign of a faithful prophet. It is a, it is a condemnation of the ruler who when confronted with sin did not repent. This is a reminder to all of us who are embarrassed ambassadors of Christ, the goal was not success by man's metrics. The goal was faithfulness for each one of us and however that looks like. It is faithfulness. Why did Herod not repent? because what he treasured the most was coming to an end. His kingdom, because the true King has come. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. He is coming. That's what John was was declaring the whole time. And boy, Herod loved ruling his kingdom. He loved ruling his kingdom. So the question for you today is, do you love ruling your kingdom more than Jesus? You know, I I can't help but notice just a a little thread that's run through this several different times as we land the plane here. It's it's just through these first three chapters and there's this thread that nobody has room for Jesus. Right, Zechariah, Gabriel comes, gives him a message. He didn't have room for that. He wanted to know, well, he didn't trust. He didn't have faith. He wanted to know how this is going to happen. There was obviously no room for Jesus in the end. In fact, this song that we sing, that it seems like every year we sing the same song, and every year it, it gets louder and louder as the saints are realizing, and, and, and the song is called Prepare Him Room. And, and the question that Nate often asked us is, do we have room for Jesus? It seems like Zachariah didn't have any room for Gabriel's message, and There was no room for Jesus in the end, and and Herod had no room in his heart for John's message of repentance. There's no room for that. So the question is obvious How about you? Have you made room for Jesus? Will you repent and trust Him and Him alone today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I I know just as John's message, as we walk through your word and this is what comes up, that I pray that, that I would be found faithful in giving your message. Lord, but now we know. We know the, the great baptism that happens in the Holy Spirit. We also know what is coming one day. And Lord, I pray that we would continue to work on, if we are in Christ, to continue to lay aside the things that we trust in so that we continue to build our trust in you. Lord, in if there's anybody here, and the sound of my voice is never so. Trusted in you. But well, I pray that they will see that Jesus came to save them. He came to take the wrath that they deserve. They would just turn and trust in Him. Trust in Him as Savior. Father, I pray that your spirit would change a heart today if needed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.